We started last week um, with this comment that there are three places where the Gospel of Mark, or in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus actually predicts his betrayal, his death, and his resurrection. It happens three times. And they're found fairly close together. They're sort of clustered, if you will. The first came immediately after Peter's confession that Christ is the uh, Messiah. The second was in our passage last week. And then the third is in our passage this week. And what was interesting is they're all found in, again, this small section of Mark, which is from Mark chapter 9, verse 30, through chapter 10. And those, those two chapters, basically, revolve around the cost, expectations, and qualities necessary to be a disciple of Christ. And so you can see the connection there. Jesus predicts his betrayal, the ultimate cost that he's going to pay on behalf of his disciples, and he immediately teaches them about what his expectations of them is. There's another place where Jesus refers to counting the cost. And oftentimes we don't necessarily think about that. We, um, When I was brought to Christ, I was brought to Christ um, by a gentleman who was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, and he led me to Christ using something called the Four Spiritual Laws. Uh, which starts out, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And that is indeed true. The one thing that Bob did not talk to me about was the cost, however. What was expected. And and I think that's okay. Um, meaning you have to get to it at some point. And I'm very thankful that I was led to Christ uh, from Bob. But there's a cost associated with it. There's an expectation that Jesus died for us, and now there's an expectation that we will live a certain way. And so it's not surprising that the three times that he mentions his betrayal, his death, and his resurrection, that he's going to surround that by teachings on what it means to be a true disciple of his. In fact, we see that when Jesus separates the sheep and the goats at the judgment, there are many that will say, Lord, Lord, look at all the wonderful things I did in your name. And Jesus looks at them and says, I didn't know you. They weren't even saved, but they thought they were because of what they did. But ultimately, they really truly weren't. Last week we covered the first part of this where we saw four principles that I'll call them marks of a genuine disciple. It has to be a servant of all because Jesus was a servant. They must not possess a spirit of exclusivism, which means even though we're part of a neat club, if you will, we're followers of Jesus Christ. Within that body, we have differences of opinions sometimes. Maybe we don't all worship the same way. Maybe we don't all enjoy the same music. Maybe we don't even necessarily enjoy some of the same activities or behaviors or convictions regarding what's right and what's wrong. Um, and we have to allow for that to some degree as long as it doesn't violate God's word. And sometimes we can become somewhat exclusive. You know, the Baptists don't like the Lutherans because they're not a part of the same denomination or whatever it is. And we were warned about that last week. We also learned that a disciple should not cause others to sin. And finally, a disciple must be committed to preserving peace among his brothers and sisters in Christ. It's critical. Well, today we're going to look at the second half, if you will, and discover some additional marks of a true disciple. There's another five today that we're going to look at. So we're going to look at another five marks of a genuine or a true disciple. The first one we find in chapter 10, starting in verses 1 through 12. I'm going to look at verse 1. The Pharisees were constantly testing Jesus, and that was the case here. Look at verse 1 with me. Getting up, 
He went from there to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Now, the principle we're going to learn from here is this. A genuine disciple has high regard for God's word. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ and not respect God's word. The Pharisees had basically two schools of thought when it came to handling God's word, especially on this specific topic, the topic of divorce. There was the school or the house of Shimei. Basically, they believed that a man could divorce his wife for adultery, and that was the only exception they had. There was another school, the house of Hillel, and he taught that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. In fact, to come down to even things as trivial as burning a meal. Can you imagine that? Wake up in the morning, your wife burns your toast, and she's out the door. That would have been permissible, according to the house of Hillel. So there was quite a bit of debate among these two schools, and Pharisees generally followed one school or the other. So they were either from the house of Shimei, or they were from the house of Hillel. Overall, the house of Hillel was what I would refer to as the more liberal branch. If you were to associate it with churches today, you have the conservative churches, and then you have the more liberal. You might say the Episcopal church is more liberal because of what they allow. In fact, I was in uh, Granville not too long ago, and right on the same street corner, there's a church with a big rainbow banner out front supporting homosexual activity. It's Episcopal church. That would be the more liberal. They might, you might say that that would be the house of Hillel, the more liberal branch. And then you have the conservative you know, churches, which you might say would fit into, or be similar to the house of Shimei. So we had something very similar back then as we do today. It appears that this particular group of Pharisees that actually came to Jesus were probably from the house of Hillel, the more liberal. And part of that is because when they asked Jesus, is it permissible to divorce, if you go to, I think it's the Gospel of Matthew, they add a little phrase there, is it permissible to divorce for any reason at all? And so what they're really trying to do here is they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus to answer a question that they often debated. And the the test is pretty much this. If Jesus sided with one house, um, then the other house would be upset, right? So in other words, he's going to split the Pharisees. So they knew that, well, if he sides with us, then those other Pharisees are going to all be upset. If he sides with them, then we're going to be upset. There was no way for Jesus to answer this without upsetting somebody. So their whole point here was to trap Jesus and make him unpopular somewhere, somehow, with some people. The house of Shimei was generally thought of as being more friendly to the people, and so I think this group was hoping that Jesus would side with them, and then it would upset all the people. But for whatever reason, they come and they ask him this very simple question. I want you to read with me verses uh, 3 through 4. And he answered and he said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So basically, they asked Jesus, Is it permissible to divorce a wife for any reason at all? How does Jesus respond? Basically, what does the law say? Notice he says, What does it command you? Do you notice how they responded? What do they say? They say, well, Moses permitted. 
Think about that for a moment. Why is that important here? Jesus says, well, what does the law command you to say? Because I asked him, what's permissible? Or what does the law command us? Jesus said, well, you tell me, what does the law command? And they say, well, what it allows for. You ever have that with your kids? You know? Well, but you didn't say I couldn't do it, right? In other words, they focus on, well, what I can get away with or what's permissible. That's exactly what happens here. When Jesus is challenged by these Pharisees, they don't want to talk about what the law commanded. They want to talk about some loopholes. They want to talk about maybe what Moses permitted, what was sort of allowed. What they're basically doing here is they're referring back to a passage in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 24. And it's a passage where Moses gives some instructions to those who had already divorced their spouses or as a warning to those who were planning on divorcing their spouses. You can go ahead and turn there with me if you want to. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Verse 20, or, uh, chapter 24 of Deuteronomy, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that he finds no favor, or that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, something he didn't like in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and he puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, the first husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, the way to interpret this particular passage here is this. Moses is saying, okay, men, if you have a wife, you marry her, you decide there's something about her you don't like, so you give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. She marries somebody else. You can never marry her again. Even if her husband divorces her, even if her husband dies, you can't take her back. Now, when you think about that, is Moses saying, men, it's okay to divorce your wives? Is that what the passage says? No, he says, if you do, you can't take her back. That is what I would refer to as a deterrent. In other words, don't divorce your wives. The consequences are, if you regret it, you cannot take her back. Unless she doesn't marry anybody. So if they sent her away, they could certainly bring her back. But if she marries somebody else, so there's a risk. Basically, Moses is trying to deter a practice because they were sending their wives away, and that was, like, that was contrary to the law. And so what Moses does is he writes this. Jesus says, or tells us, why? Look at, verse, uh, look at chapter 10, verse 5. They, they say in verse 4, well, Moses permitted us to write a certificate of divorce. No, he didn't. He said, if you do that, you cannot get her back if she marries somebody else, even if she divorces. So they're basically twisting Moses' words into permission for their sin. And Jesus says, you know what? There's the reason why Moses had to write this. Verse 5, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. In other words, you were sinning against the law. You were violating the law. So Moses had to write you another commandment to tell you what happens when you violate the law. It was your hard hearts. 
So what we basically find here is you have these Pharisees who knew the law, they knew what the Bible said, but they twisted it to their own purposes. It's a hard heart. They didn't respect God or God's law. Moses had to write him another commandment because of that. So look at what Jesus does in the rest of this. He says, because of your hard hearts that he had to write you that commandment. It wasn't permission to divorce. He was trying to get you to stop the divorce. Then he goes on in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. There's the answer to their question. When they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus' answer is, what God has joined together, let no man separate. He completely rejects their twisting of Moses, their twisting of God's word. We could spend time going through this to talk about marriage and divorce, but the, the primary point this morning is that what Jesus is pointing out here is that the Pharisees had a hard heart towards God's law. They didn't respect the word of God. What's interesting is they prided themselves on their academic knowledge of God's word and their religious devotion. Remember the story of the leader that goes into the temple and he starts pouring out his heart, thank God I'm not like this pathetic sinner over here, you know. And then the sinner cries out his own sin. That's the way the Pharisees were. In fact, if you remember, Jesus elsewhere said that they were Experts, I think it was Matthew or Mark chapter 7, they were experts at setting aside the law of God for their man-made rules and traditions. And it had to do with something called Korban, which is where they were supposed to give a certain percentage of their, their money to the temple, but people could basically sort of say they're going to dedicate it to God and then not take care of their parents, you know? And so they twisted this idea of giving as an excuse to not care for their parents. And they got to keep the money and live it off, live it themselves, but it really belongs to God. It was some kind of weird vow that they took. They were twisting God's word. And so what we find here is that they were experts at doing this. So what we find here is the true mark of a disciple is somebody who has high regard for God's word. Not like the Pharisees, not like the scribes that twisted and perverted it. Look at verses 10. Through 12, in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. They wanted to know more. The reason they probably questioned him about it was because they were only familiar with two forms of teaching on this issue. They were, they were informed on what the school of Shimei said, which was that, well, divorce is okay for adultery. They were also familiar with the school of Hillel, which said it's good for any reason, and they were probably just as confused. Who do we follow? The reason they have to question Jesus is because Jesus said, no, I'm telling you, there is no exception. Now we can debate the whole uh, Matthew 19 clause. I've got, many of you know, I've got an actual full book written um, on the subject. But um, the exception Jesus gives in Matthew 19 is not for adultery. It's for sexual immorality before marriage. And it fits religious tradition and it fit, fits with what the Jews did on the marriage, with the marriage ceremony and whatnot. Which lines up perfectly with this because Jesus says here, whoever divorces his wife and marries somebody else commits adultery. He basically just said, Divorce is not permitted. And so they were a little bit puzzled by that. Because it didn't fit either one of the schools that they were familiar with. Yesterday, um, Mike Pence 
gave the commencement speech at Taylor. I don't know how many of you might have been familiar with that. But there was a significant uproar over it. And what was tragic and sad about it is um, Taylor has their, their Facebook page, and um, it was filled, filled with comments by current students, alumni, parents of current students, parents of alumni, and then obviously people who didn't, weren't even associated with the school that just went there to protest. But what was shocking were the number of comments made by current students, parents, alumni, that um, are supporting gay rights and any number of other things. Because the opposition, most of the opposition to Pence speaking was because of his comments regarding homosexuality. And it was, it was just disturbing to read through the entries. And, and you could see who were legitimate students and, and parents of students and others by simply clicking on their face and going to their own Facebook pages where they list, I'm, a, I'm an alumni of Taylor. I went to Taylor. I love Taylor. Um, there was one this morning that I was reading that just made some snarky comment. Um, she was a stu- an alumni of, of Taylor um, about how she, her, part of her protest now will be to give on a monthly basis to Planned Parenthood and NARAL, National Abortion Rights Action League. And as, as Amy and I are looking through some of these, we're thinking, what happened? Yesterday there were about 40 students, or 40 people that walked out of Pence's speech, 15 of whom were faculty, 25 were students. The faculty produced um, pins for the students or, or stickers to wear where they took the L and Taylor and made it a rainbow because they support the gay students at Taylor or elsewhere. Um, what I thought was rather ironic was that this, the the social what is it the social work department is that what it's called Amy um, produced this this card and these pins that say we commit and it's, we commit to these certain things and there's a bunch of stuff on there about you know support they don't come right out and say but you can tell from the language that what they're saying is we support gay rights and all this other kind of stuff but they start off with the very first one that said we commit to love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The rest of that chapter is all about obeying God's word, which many of these faculty and students were outright rejecting. And I thought, it's interesting. You know, all the things you say you commit to, but you're rejecting what is a fairly simple law of God. And so it was, it was disturbing. Now, you expect that every campus, including Christian campuses, are going to have some students that don't align with certain values. It was that way when I went to Grace. I didn't go to college. I went to seminary, but the Grace College, it was pretty pretty common. And you'd expect that because college kids are going to struggle with where they fit with their faith and other things. But this is pretty disturbing. Um, I think, how many, stu- how many faculty signed a protest against Pence coming? 61, 61 against 40. Yeah. So basically... 60, 65% of the faculty were opposed to Mike Pence coming and speaking on campus because they didn't agree or align with his values. And I'm thinking, everything we seem to know and think about Mike Pence is that he's a, he's a godly Christian man. Now, you may not agree with everything. You may not agree with how can he work in the Trump administration and work with... Okay, I understand that. But the, it's funny because so many of the protests and the comments were specifically related to his, his opposition to homosexual behavior. And it was shocking to see the number of current students or alumni or whatnot that don't seem to understand God's word when it comes to that subject. It's heartbreaking. 
It's disturbing. I'm gonna, I'll make a statement here that you can either accept or reject it, but I would be willing to bet that many of those are not genuine disciples of Christ. I'm not going to speak to their salvation. But you cannot be a disciple of Christ and outright reject God's word. You cannot disrespect it. And There's room for disagreement on some subjects, but even Kimberly and I were talking about this, and she's like, yeah, but Dad, that's a big one. That is pretty black and white. It's not like debating the timing of the rapture where there's some debate and some question. Or exactly what might, how do we interpret the book of Revelation in some respects, you know? It's pretty black and white. And when you outright reject that, it's hard to call yourself a disciple of Christ because Jesus himself makes it fairly clear that genuine disciples love his word. In fact, God and the, you know, with, um, when God gave the law, he finishes by some count, most scribes and, and Pharisees during Jesus' day believed there was about 613 commandments. Right after God gave all those commandments to the Israelites, you know what he said? Now you may think this is too hard, but it's not. You just have to love me with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and obey my commandments. That's what it took to be an Israelite. To love the Lord your God and to obey my commandments as written. You can't call yourself a disciple of Christ if you're going to reject or dishonor God's word in that way. And so the first thing we see with these Pharisees, they were all proud about their understanding of the scriptures, but they rejected it, they twisted it, they perverted it. Let's move on to the second principle here. A true disciple has childlike faith. If you look at chapter 10, verse 13, And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, saying, or laying his hands on them. So people were attempting to bring these children to Jesus. And it's rather remarkable because there was no way you could have hung out with Jesus and, under, and didn't think he loved children. There's no way because of what we see elsewhere in the scriptures. And yet somehow, as these parents are trying to bring their children to Jesus, the disciples, the ones that knew him best, thought, no, Jesus doesn't have time for the little children. They surely missed something there. And so Jesus takes it as an opportunity. It says he becomes indignant here, but he makes two rather profound statements in this. Verse 14, he says, Permit the children to come to me, do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So the first profound statement is that the kingdom of God belongs to those who have the faith of a child. The second profound statement is found in verse 15, where he says, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So the second mark of a true disciple of Jesus is that we should have childlike faith. Now what does that actually mean? Well, I think you'd all agree with me that children, just like us, are a bunch of little sinners. You know? We'd like to say they're all little angels, but they're all little sinners just like us. The point here is that even so, children are generally characterized by humbleness, teachability, and trust, are they not? You know, I remember when Kimberly and Katie were tiny, you tell them to do something, they just generally would do it. They still have a sin nature. But they trust, they have to trust. 
They're generally teachable. I can see reflected in Kimberly and Katie things that they've learned from mom and dad. That's the point. That's what childlike faith is. It's this dependence, this trust, this willingness to be taught, to fed, to learn. And so Jesus is basically saying, you need to be like a child with your faith. And isn't that really true when you think about it? We are children of God. We should act like it. And a genuine disciple does. One of the tragic things that... And, I, and I'm not trying to disparage Taylor. Um, it's just disturbing to me. But so many of the comments that I saw posted don't reflect a childlike faith. They reflect an arrogance, a proudness, um, an accusational tone or judgmentalism towards Christian values that are fairly simple and clear. We're supposed to have childlike faith. I think I told Randy, um, when I got off the plane, I think I mentioned it to you guys too, I got off the plane and literally had my plane in airplane mode until I land, and then while we're taxiing back in, I turn it off airplane mode, and all of a sudden these notifications start coming in. And I saw that some of my appointments that were scheduled that had to happen for me to do my job, they're canceling. And I'm like, oh. I'm thinking, okay. And so I'm literally praying on the plane. I'm like, you know, God, this is just an opportunity. I've got four days here. You've got four days to make this happen. And I knew it was going to be a little rough. And I knew it was going to be multiple trips and I'd have to rearrange schedules. I knew I was going to take some heat from the management out there blaming me for stuff that I didn't control. But I remember being on the plane and think, okay, one of two reactions is appropriate here. One is just trust the Lord to get it done. The other is to now get frustrated and upset, start whining, complaining. But I walked off the plane. I said, God will have to do it. I'll have to take care of it, you know. And he did. I got, like I said, I had some extra time. I was able to, you know, finish up early. It was all good. But trust, teachability, humbleness is another mark of a true or a genuine disciple of Christ. Let's look at the third one. A genuine disciple is willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. That's, I think, a hard one for us because we don't necessarily understand what that really means. Look at verse 17. And he was setting out on a journey. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandment. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt the love for him and said to him, One thing you lack... Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Who then can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. 
But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, there's a lot we could unpack here. I imagine some of you are probably dying to know a couple of things. You might want to know why in the world Jesus rejected being called a good teacher. You might be wondering, some of you kids, how in the world a camel could go through an eye of a needle. But I'm going to let you down. I'm not going to talk about those things. You want to debate them later on? We can. But uh, in the interest of time, we're going to focus instead on the main point of this text. The main point is that a genuine disciple must be willing to give up everything. What we have here is this man who comes to Jesus and he seems pretty eager. Says he was eager for salvation. Says he was perfect at obeying the law. He knew it wasn't enough. And he knew there had to be more for him to inherit eternal life. Those are all good marks, are they not? However, he was lacking one thing. During Jesus' day, the Jews generally associated righteousness and salvation with wealth. They thought that people of wealth, in some respects, could earn their salvation or earn their place before God because they could give more. They could tithe more. Um, the example, again, of the Pharisee going into the, you know, the temple. Um, there was a... <laughs> I don't remember who it was, somebody, I was at Grace at the time, but somebody shared a story during one of his messages about a church he had been pastoring at one point, and a small church of 100 or 200 people, and they would pass the plate around or whatever, and um, take their normal collection. But at the end of that, on a fairly regular basis, there was always this woman that would, after that was done, sort of raise her hand up and wave what were like dollar bills or something in her hand, her offering so that the um, ushers would have to go back and collect it from her. Well, what would be the purpose in doing that? The plate already passed her by, she could have put it in there, but wanted the recognition for what she was doing. Wanted all to know that she was a giver, you know, whatever it was. That's kind of the way the, the Pharisees were, and oftentimes um, the Jews had this impression that wealth was clearly an indication of God's favor upon you, and you could now do more for God, and to be poor was quite the opposite. You had no favor with God. You couldn't do much for God. So we have this individual who comes to Jesus. He's financially loaded, um, but not only was he a wealthy man, he also believed that he was a good man when it came to the law, that he was perfect in doing everything, and yet... He lacked that one thing, which was a willingness to give up everything. Notice in verse 26, that when Jesus basically says that it is extremely difficult for a rich man like this to enter the kingdom of God, it says that they were astonished. It's because it kind of blew their minds in some respects. Wait a minute, Jesus. The rich are supposed to have it easy. They're already in God's favor. We can see it. Look at them. They're rich. God has blessed them. How can they not enter the kingdom of God? So they were astonished that Jesus was saying that's not an indicator of where somebody sits with the Lord. So what he does from there is he basically looks at the disciples and Peter sort of kind of gets it now. And he says, oh, well, we've given up an awful lot, haven't we, Jesus? Think about this. These disciples had left their livelihood. Peter was a fisherman. 
sort of following Jesus. It's kind of hard to follow Jesus walking through the wilderness and fish at the same time. Now we know that after um, after Jesus' death, Peter went back to fishing for a brief period of time. You'd almost expect that. What do you do now? The guy you thought was the Messiah is now gone. But what does he do when Jesus then pulls him aside on the beach and sends him out? Peter now gives up fishing and now becomes an evangelist. Paul worked as a tent maker, but made his life ultimately as an evangelist. That was the case with all of these. Jesus' response to that, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake that he will not receive a hundred times as much. I think we... We have it pretty good here. I've said that over and over and over again. Um, We have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world that have nothing. They've given up everything. You know, I came across another article about China's increased efforts to stomp out Christianity, confiscating property and imprisoning people. Um, The president of China's goal is to completely eradicate Christianity from China. They see it as a threat. Um, the only things that they're allowing for are state-sponsored churches where those pastors, as part of what's called the three... Oh, I can't remember, it's threefold, a three-person three church or whatever, I don't remember the exact name of it, but they have to submit their sermons to be edited by the state before they can preach them. And references to God or other things are yanked out. Um, so they're really not churches. And pastors have submitted to that thinking, well... We can at least still preach. Not really. Preaching a false gospel now. They have to preach and teach about communism and and other things. Um, So many of those that are still meeting in house churches are giving up everything. They're willing to sacrifice it all. I think it's a hard concept for us sometimes. But Jesus said, that's what's required. I can tell you right now, I wouldn't be comfortable giving up everything. I kind of like having a house and family and other things, but what if it gets to be here like it is there? I think we'd see fairly quickly some filtering take place and we'd see who really is a genuine disciple and who's not. Here was a man who came to Jesus with all the right things, wanted salvation, obeyed the law, was desperate to know what do I have to do to be saved and when Jesus says, well, sell it all and just come follow me and he says, oh, I can't do that. And it says he went away grieved. The man was willing to keep his wealth and forfeit salvation. So another mark of a genuine disciple is how much are you willing to give up if you have to, if you're called upon? We haven't been called upon here yet to face the kind of persecution that others have in other places. But what if we were? I think we'd see really quickly where our faith is and whether or not we are genuine disciples of Christ. So the third mark, if you will, is a genuine disciple is willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. The fourth one, a disciple does not aspire self-glorification. Look at chapter 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. This is the third time now that Jesus predicts his betrayal, death, and and, and whatnot, but verse 33, 
Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and he will hand, or they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. So we just finished this discussion about being willing to give up everything to follow Christ. Some of the disciples, Peter and them, said, Look, we've given up everything. And Jesus said, Yes, and you'll be rewarded for it. He then predicts his death, burial, and resurrection. And look at what happens next. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever you ask of us. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said, Grant that we may sit, one at your right and one at your left, in glory. In other words, give us the best seat so that we can rule. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or do you, or will you be baptized with the baptism which with I am baptized? And they said to him, Well, we're able. In other words, yeah, we can do just what you do, Jesus. We're worthy. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And you should be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. In other words, they're going to face persecution and ultimately death, just like he did. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give but it is for those with whom it's been prepared. In other words, the Father's going to figure that out. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. In other words, the the rest of the disciples are going, Really, dudes? You think you're better than the rest of us? You think you get the best seats in the kingdom? So now they're indignant with James and John for their pride and for their arrogance. And again, this comes right on the tail discussion of how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus has already had a discussion with them before about this arrogance of, of, of pride and other things that they suffer with. And here these two are basically saying, we're worthy to be the two best guys in the kingdom next to you, Jesus. There's some self-glorification there. And this is why Jesus responds this way. Look at verses 41 and following. The others become indignant with James and John. So Jesus calls them to himself. You know that those who, recognize, who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And they're... Great men exercise authority over them. In other words, he was going right at the heart of what James and John were thinking. In their mind, they're looking at the Roman rulers and realizing the power and authority they have, and that's what they want. They want power and authority to rule in God's kingdom. There's an arrogance and a pride there. Jesus says in verse 43, But it's not this way among you. In other words, you're not supposed to be that way. And among, or and whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be the first among you shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In other words, he takes James and John down a notch and basically says their self-glorification has absolutely nothing to do in God's kingdom. If anything... They should have been begging Jesus for the opportunity to serve, not to rule. And so the fourth principle here is that a disciple does not aspire self-glorification. He should not seek to be first, but instead should seek to be last. I've been thinking recently here about... um, what we've seen happen with some of our megachurch pastors in America that have sort of set the tone for Christianity for the last 20 years. Bill Hybels of Willow Creek just resigned from his church early. He was supposed to retire, but resigned about six months earlier because of accusations regarding inappropriate behavior with women. We had Mark Driscoll of um, 
Mars Hill, who was forced out of his church because of his abusive leadership. There have been dozens of former leaders and elders from his church that have accused him of much of this with written documentation of the behavior and the things that he did where he was a bit of a tyrant. He's now moved down to, I think it's Texas, and started a new church with the same board, the same group of individuals surrounding him. We just recently had James McDonald removed from Harvest. Shocking, shocking things that have come out of that church regarding his leadership and the abuse of leadership. The finances, over a million dollars a year in, in income that he was receiving from the church when the church is, at one point, $60 million in debt. Just recently, um, he had a meeting with the church up there where he was demanding, they were trying to sell some unused airtime that the church owns for his Walk in the Word ministry. church owns it. He was trying to broker a deal where selling it for $4 million, he would walk away with $2 million in his own pocket. Those that were closest to him, friends and associates that have now come out, talked about this significant abuse and the arrogance And I don't say that to disparage him, but I sit back and I think to myself, what in the world happened? And we see this time and time again. Pastors struggle just like everybody else, but and I only bring these up because they're well-known figures. So again, it's not to disparage them, but it's to say, you know what, that's totally opposite or backwards of what God's servant is supposed to be. What we often find with many many within what I'm going to call the megachurch cult movement is that they're built on the cult of the pastor and oftentimes it's a disservice to the pastor because you see abuses in leadership and wealth and other things and we do a disservice to our pastors when we permit that and allow that. They're individuals much like us and get tempted and when we set them up on a pedestal and when we allow them to buy multi-million dollar mansions and we say, well, they've been a great pastor at our church here and so we pay them a million dollars a year in a salary package and you think... Really? When that is ten times more than the average person in their church? There's something wrong with that. If they were in business, that's fine. But we do a huge disservice to them. And so Jesus here is looking at James and John who, they want to rule. Just like the Romans. To have power and authority in God's kingdom. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The self-glorification, the rule that you desire is wrong. Instead, you ought to desire to be last, not first. I'm the opposite side of the spectrum and I love John MacArthur in many respects because I think he's at the same church he's always been at what's interesting is every single one of his messages you can go online and get for free his whole resource his whole library is available he doesn't sell his teaching now if you want if you listen to his radio show and you want it on a CD they'll charge you to put it on a CD to ship to you but everything he does it's available quite the opposite of so many He doesn't make tons. Quite the opposite, I think. And again, I'm not trying to set one up against the other as much as to give an example. Let's look at the very last mark that we see here. A true disciple demonstrates unrelenting faith. And this is a very small section, verses 46 through 52, and we'll wrap it up with this. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a large crowd, a blind beggar came. His name was Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus was sitting by the road. When they heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, they began to cry. he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. But many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, 
Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying, Take courage, stand up, he is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. I'm just going to touch on this and look at the main point here. I think the reason that Mark included that at the end of this section, because from here on, this is Jesus is basically entering Jerusalem next. What does this particular small piece have to do with the rest? Well, what we've been looking at is what it means to be a genuine disciple. And I think the reason he puts Bartholomew in here, or Bartimaeus in here, is because of his unrelenting faith. He's a good example of a genuine disciple who demonstrates unrelenting faith. It's a faith that refuses to give up. You notice that what we have here is as they're walking, you have these people, it says, the procession that were leading the way. They were probably followers of Jesus. They're leading the way. They're marching to Jericho, just you know, believing in what Jesus is supposed to be doing, right? But there's this man who desperately needs Christ. And what do they do? Tell him to shut up. Because their mission is too important. They're taking Jesus to the next place, you know, and there's this poor, blind beggar desperately needing Jesus. And they're pushing him out of the way. They should have known Jesus' heart, right? This man doesn't give up. Because it says that the more they told him to be quiet, the more he shouted. He was unwilling to just walk away. We have other examples in the scripture. We have the um, men who dug the hole in the ceiling. Remember that? They couldn't get in to see Jesus, so they dug the hole. That was unrelenting faith. We have the uh, woman who wanted to get close to Jesus, did it very quietly, worked her way to the front, and just touched his robe. That was unrelenting faith. We have the centurion whose daughter was dying. As he and Jesus were walking back home, some people came and said, it's too late. She's already dead. But again, we have a centurion with unrelenting faith, an unwillingness to give up. And that is always praised by Jesus. I think sometimes we get discouraged fairly easy when we don't get the things that we want. I had a great example. I won't share too much of it from this week, but I often pray and ask God to use me outside in my work environment, but I don't often get good opportunities to share the gospel. It gets a little discouraging. You see the same people, I've been working with the same people for 25 years. They all heard it, you know, I mean, meaning they all know me and they know what I'm at and so trying to open doors to talk and stuff. It, so I get a little discouraged sometimes. I've been praying a lot. Well, I started praying very specifically for an opportunity to share the gospel out in Kansas on this trip. And I've, I've um, amped up my prayers, if you will. God, just give me an opportunity, you know. The last couple of times I've prayed that, he hasn't done that. I was getting a little discouraged. I'm not going to give up. Lord, I'm just going to keep praying and ask. So everything blew up. I met a woman for breakfast. I was in it's an open area. It's at, at the, or at the um, hotel. It was downstairs. She ended up sharing some things as we were standing in line getting some omelets. I got an opportunity to share the gospel for an hour and a half, or hour and 15 minutes with her. She was a half-Jewish lady. Um, great opportunity to share the gospel. I left there, went to one of my offices where something had blown up. The manager asked me as I walked in the door some questions and it led to sharing the gospel for about 30 minutes. That night I get a phone call from somebody here in Columbus who needed some counsel on some things. And I'm thinking, okay God, everything blew up here but you've answered some prayers. I think I'm good for the week. <laughs> you know? Unrelenting faith. I was getting discouraged. I'm like, I want to even ask God. Why don't I even ask? You haven't answered the prayer yet. He wants us to keep asking. 
That's unrelenting faith, another side of a genuine disciple. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up with that. I see the time. Um, we're a little bit over. But um, I think the takeaway from last week and this week is that there are marks of a genuine disciple. We can't just say that we believe in Jesus. We can't just say, I said the sinner's prayer. There are things that represent who we are, and these are some of them today. You know, things like um, having this high regard for God's word, not having any type of self-glorification in mind for ourselves, being willing to give up anything and everything for Christ if asked to. Those are the genuine marks, or the marks of a genuine disciple.